Marini's Media. Totally Football Show. With all the big stories ahead of the final weekend. Eight goals at Anfield and a lovely light show after, while at Old Trafford, David Moyes still making Man United drop points after all these years as Pogba chokes on a rice ball. Not since Wayne Hennessy as a footballer got in so much trouble for putting his hands up, etc. and so on. We'll look back and forward and, hey, sideways too, at the midweek games and Sunday's big deciders. Who gets top four and who's out the trap door? Plus, the dramatic denouement, Wednesday's final round of the championship. It's all in this Totally Football show in association with Paddy Power. Hello you, it's Thursday the 23rd of July and with 90 minutes to play in the Premier League. We're joined by Duncan Alexander of Opta. Good morning James. Good morning to you Duncan. Natalie Jedra of ESPN Brazil's here. Hi Natalie. Hello boys. Hello Natalie. And also uh, Hugh Wurzengroft of Talksport Radio. Hello Hugh. Hi, how you doing? Oh, excellent. Let's well, got the full lineup then. Person, woman, man. Camera TV, excellent. Uh, good. Hey, Hugh, you're 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 fresh from a big night. You were doing the championship finale for for Talksport. Yeah, uh, I could barely speak by the end of it. Just in terms of what a crazy finish it was. Um, you got a feel for some fans in the championship. You know, people say it's the hardest league. All those uh, cliches, things. You know, the most difficult league in in football or whatnot. But the results, I mean, they're just so difficult to predict. And the last couple of weeks, but even the final night, um, equally unpredictable. And yeah, we'll talk about it more, but I feel mostly for, I don't really feel too badly for Brentford missing out on the final day, even though it would have been an incredible story. They've still got another chance, but the team's in the bottom three, no way back down to League One. You you failed to say you feel for Forest fans there, Hugh. Surely you feel for the Forest fans. <laughs> um, I'm one of these people, after 46 games, the table doesn't lie to use another steep uh, cliche, but the, the, there's a reality to it, even on goal difference. They go on about the two European Cups so much, I didn't think they cared about current seasons, but it seems they do. So. Wow, what a backlash. Benji Wade <laughs> saying, did you all at least offer Daniel Story a cuddle? Uh, apparently not. Uh, Adam Shenton, uh, also on the Forest Topic. Liverpool fans talk about the period that saw multiple world-class footballers and European trophies as 30 years of hurt. So what does that make Nottingham Forest two-decade clown car ride outside the top tier? Natalie, do you feel for Nottingham Forest fans? I do. Actually, when I was looking uh, at the results uh, of the championship yesterday, Nottingham Forest was the first one that I, that I looked for. Because it's nice to see these traditional teams just back at the Premier League or back at the fight, you know. I feel for them. All my sympathy to them. Right, Nottingham Forest missing out on the playoffs at the last minute is pretty uh, on brand as far as tradition goes. <laughs> yeah, I was looking at how long it's been since they're in the Premier League. The Sopranos hadn't debuted on British TV the last time Forest played in the Premier League. So it, it's been a long time and it did look like this could be a chance, but there's always next season. Isn't there though? All right then. Uh, more, as Hugh says, on all of that later on, because while that was going on across the fields of the Championship, the rest of us... We're tuned in to the eight-goal thriller at Anfield. Liverpool winning 5-3 against Chelsea. Let's talk about that now. First of all, was this the best game since the restart? 
Uh, I think some Chelsea fans would back to, to disagree, but I think it's it's cool to have at times these matches that are full of mistakes uh, from both sides, actually, because uh, I know it's not ideal. I know it's not what the, 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 the managers want, but uh, from a neutral point of view and from a point of view of, of people who are just interested in, in seeing an interesting match, uh, I think it was it, it was great, but if I were a Chelsea fan, I know it's very exciting uh, that they are getting Timo Werner and they are getting Ziyech and they are looking for Kai Havertz. But I would be desperate for uh, this defender that can be a true reference uh, back there uh, because th they haven't had this for a while. And yesterday they were just full of mistakes in the especially on the counter attacks on first half uh Liverpool had four shots and three were goals so this kind of thing cannot happen and and that would worry me a lot but uh that made the match of course more interesting of course Liverpool had their uh defensive mistakes as well uh it wasn't the first time ever since they came back from the break. I think we're not used to seeing uh, this type of things happening, especially with Liverpool, with Alisson and Van Dijk. I was a bit afraid that this match wouldn't be as interesting as the the ceremony, the trophy lifting ceremony, uh, but it was, was really interesting. There was something quite neat about the fact that it contained the world's two most expensive ever goalkeepers and it uh, ended 5-3. Um, <laughs> and I think Kepa... I mean, don't want to focus too much on him, but his form has, has fallen off a cliff. Um, he's now conceded 8% of the goals Chelsea have ever conceded in the Premier League. And then there was the thing at the end of the game where a cross comes in and there's four Chelsea defenders and at least two or three of them shout Kepa. You can actually hear them shout Kepa and he just stands still and watches the ball go over his head and to Van Dijk, who probably should have done better. I mean, it, like you can almost set up a new sitcom called Old Kepa with an exclamation mark at the end. And, you know, this week, what a hilarious uh, situation does the Chelsea goalkeeper get himself into? And I think, you know, it's all very well, as Natalie said, buying all these attackers. But, you know, Br Chelsea have conceded more goals than Brighton this season. They're not going to be able to challenge for the title next year with this defence and goalkeeper. Um, you know, they look so susceptible from set pieces and, and crosses that they it really is a, a major issue for them they are the worst defense uh in the top 10 in the in the top half of the of the table 54 uh goals conceded in 37 matches it's a lot for a club like chelsea right does sound a lot doesn't it on the telly they were having a go at kepper for well the Keta's stunning opener and then of course that marvelous free kick from trent alexander arnold which i, I thought was a bit harsh i mean certainly the free kick looked uh, in the unstoppable category yeah, it was good, but it wasn't quite in the top corner. Um, so I think a lot of goalkeepers would expect to get maybe slightly nearer it than than Kepa did. I mean, just a word for Trent, you know, that's another free kick. Only of players as young as him, only Jamie Redknapp's ever scored more direct free kicks uh, at that age. He got his 13th assist of the season as well. He got in the Guinness Book of World Records last year for getting 12 assists, so presumably he'll be in the next edition for 13. There's something very annoying to me and I think to most football fans when the goalkeeper doesn't jump on the ball. As oh. hard as it can be, I, I don't know, I'm, I'm always very bothered when that doesn't happen. And that was the case. So, okay. yeah, I, I know it was a very tough ball. He might have not got there, uh, probably actually, but come on, just jump on the ball. You know, it's, it's just annoying. But at the same time, it's, it's 
It's such a big part of a goal like that, the fact that the keeper didn't even move. You know, It, it adds to the luster of, of, of uh, Alexander-Arnold's uh, kick. W- were you happy at least for Roberto Firmino getting his first league goal at Anfield on the last possible moment? Oh God, I was I was even nervous actually because the 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 statistics just kept adding up and he was uh, anxious as well. We we spoken to to him uh, during the season and as much as he's not the your typical striker and that that scores every goal, he he really uh, expects that from himself and he's upset when he loses uh, opportunities and that has been happening and the, the confidence was just uh, not that high at Anfield because of that, because he knew that he he he, he didn't score, he, he wasn't scoring at Anfield. Uh, last time was 31st of March 2019, so for for a striker like for Firmino, it's 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 too long. But uh, you can see the relief when he was celebrating. Uh, I, I was very happy for him because he 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 totally deserves it. He he had such brilliant spells during the season, and I was happy that that things ended up this way this season for him. On the Chelsea front, question marks again over them defending on corners and the issues you've raised with the keeper. But one thing that does look exceptionally promising for them is this Christian Pulisic fellow. When he came on, was it was it his entrance into the game? Was it Liverpool taking the foot off the gas? I'm not sure, but he looked extraordinary. The the run he made to set up uh, one goal, and the the way he finished off Hudson Odoi's assist as well, magnificent. I think he's almost signing for Chelsea uh, for next season because he had so so many problems with injuries and we are just seeing a glimpse of him at the end of this season and uh, the, he he just completely changed the dynamic up front and William uh, has been doing well in past matches and Giroud scoring uh, but he he managed to to change the dynamics completely. Right, and that's the phrase like a new signing, Natalie. Well assimilated. <laughs> oh, thank you. Talking of assimilation, Liverpool, um, that's the third season in a row they've gone and beaten Anfield, which is the first time they've done that, and um, they equaled the record number of points in a in a home campaign. So after dropping a few records in recent weeks, it was good, I guess, for them to, to do that. And obviously they can reach 99 points if they, if they win their last game. That's the target. Uh, post-game Wednesday night, they had that big trophy thing, which I'm interested to hear your reaction to... It looked to me a little bit like the finale of, of Pop Idol. I imagine never having actually watched Pop Idol. And whilst it was kind of full of sound and fury and all that, every now and then the camera would cut to their kind of POV shot and they were just dancing there but staring out into the inky void. Uh, it was almost like a... There was something, I don't know, I'm not going to say Nietzschean about it, but I, it felt like, I don't want to be the fun police here, but it did feel like a slightly weird and artificial exercise to to have all that you know for a party that nobody else could come to you are being the fun police yes am i being the fun police yeah. yes absolutely i i think they pulled off well i watched other uh trophy ceremonies at la liga and bundesliga and and this one was by far the most exciting one that the other ones were just kind of flat you know so i appreciate the effort with the fireworks and and the podium show of lights and music well i appreciate the effort i think they created a nice atmosphere james and they'd certainly uh, spared no expense by looks fit on it which i think one or two people had a bit of an issue with as well in the current climate my only issue with it is um that surely they'll have to do it again when fans are allowed back into the stadium right you know they'll do it in front of their fans they'll have the parade as well so 
I imagine it will be done at Anfield again in front of season ticket holders and fans. The second time round, it might seem strange. Very true. Now, the defeat leaves Chelsea, meanwhile, needing a point at the weekend when they're at home to Wolves to secure their Champions League place for next season. Of course, Chelsea, Man United and Leicester all separated by just one point ahead of the final round of matches. Man United, a little bit earlier on Wednesday evening, only managing a draw at home to West Ham. We'll get on to that next. You're listening to the Totally Football Show with James Richardson, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. And if you're not yet a subscriber to The Athletic, make sure you check out their coverage of each and every Premier League club by taking out a free 30-day trial by heading to theathletic.com slash totally. He's in trouble. He's in big trouble, Paul Pogba. He's in big, big trouble. He's giving a penalty away and then pretending it's hit his head. It's rubbish from him. Rubbish. Gary Neville there on Paul Pogba defending that free kick. Can I just ask, hands up, who wouldn't have put their hands up faced with Declan Rice's missile? Well, I've got to be perfectly honest with this. I had people saying yesterday they wouldn't criticise Paul Pogba because they would have put their hands up as well. I mean, if you watch the replay, Paul Pogba is well on his way to being underneath the ball, having ducked out the way. And he still raises his hands pretty much above his head to make sure he connects with his hands. I mean, you can call it an instinctive reaction if, if you want to. I'm, I'm not sure it, it showed anything other than a really lax attitude, to be perfectly honest. I mean, I'm not one of these people that's like, you've got to take a ball in the face. You've got to be prepared. But equally, he could have ducked out the way and not been touched by the ball whatsoever. Was that the key moment, Hugh, in the game? I mean, prior to that, United no. had been... In, it wasn't. What What was then? They have been slipping back into some of their, their prior form uh, in the Premier League season, which is basically that um, an away side can go to Old Trafford, fans or not, and not really have to do much to get at least a point. Um West Ham United, you know, they were pretty much par for the course yesterday. They, they, you know, it wasn't like their, their previous games. It wasn't all out to stay up in the Premier League table. They weren't fighting for absolutely everything. But they came, gave a good account and got a point. And um, it, it wasn't really more than that. I think the key for me, I'd said last week, you know, when it came to the semi-final in the FA Cup against Chelsea, for me, that was the game for Ole Gunnar Solskjaer to rest players. And I know Man United fans will say, well, hold on a minute, there's the prospect of a trophy in sight. You know, it, it's a club that should be winning stuff. Well, for the long-term interest, in fact, for the short to medium-term interest of Manchester United, being in the uh, Champions League next season is more important than winning an FA Cup, which we know they've done many times before. And they were, they were flagging, they have been flagging, and it was another lacklustre performance from them. And this had been coming for a while. And to be honest, you know, if they do reach the Champions League, they will have limped over the line. But when they lost to Chelsea in the FA Cup semi-final, it was down, I, I understood, too, the fact that Oli had rotated the team. So how come that didn't do them any good in this game? I don't think it's uh, it's that simple. It's not a formula, you know. Uh, sometimes uh, squad rotation works uh, as you wish, as you planned, and, and sometimes it doesn't. And I think uh, United has been in, in a very good form for a very long time. And... Uh, it's it's a very intense period, and I, I 
I think the fans find it easier to forgive that they dropped a little in the FA Cup than uh, against this this West Ham match because uh, Champions League spot is so so important. But even Bruno Fernandes, who, who was brilliant, uh, he dropped a little bit, especially on second half, on first half. He was participating a lot. But uh, either way, I think Man United still has a, a very good chance. Uh, if you look between Man United and Leicester and everything that, that, that they've been doing, I think Man United still stand a, a very good chance. And they had uh, about Mason Greenwood. He needs just uh, one more goal to become United's top-scoring uh, teenager in, in a single campaign. So they have plenty of good news during this post-break period. And I don't know. I'm, I'm, if I were a United fan, I would still be confident uh, that they could get this Champions League spot. Okay. They do look shagged out, pooped and cream crackered, though, don't they, Hugh? Are you a little bit bewildered as to how such a high-spending team, such a kind of massive football institution, can arrive at the end of a campaign, admittedly a long one, kind of more worn out than anybody else almost? The, the issue is, and probably the reason that Ole Gunnar Solskjaer didn't change his starting lineup much, is I'm not sure he really has any trust in the players outside the starting 11, 12, 13 players. Um, you know, he changed the team massively for the FA Cup game against Norwich. It went to extra time, scraped over the line in that one. I think if you'd watched that game, none of those players, fringe players, really put themselves in a position to be saying, I should be playing in the Premier League as well, because we know how that how important that is. And that's against a side that, that was relegated bottom of the league that had also made changes. I think I made a list the other day of, of players in the Manchester United squad that I, you know, wouldn't mind if they left. And I mean, yeah. it's it's pretty much half the squad. Who, who um, would be the first one you would drive to the airport yourself? <laughs> you know, it's not necessarily about players that you dislike. It's just what what's the value of the squad? What's the value of a Phil Jones making more than £100,000 a week to either be injured or terrible? You know, that's the reality of it. He's not. He's currently not at the level you would need a Manchester United player to be at. He's the new Duncan Edwards. <laughs> Yeah, we remember that fondly. Um, you know, if there are teams interested in the Jesse Lingard, Andreas Pereira, you know, Matic, who's improved, but if he left and someone like Thomas Partey was coming in, I think Man United fans would be delighted. You know, Odion Agallo, who is, you know, on loan and fair enough, but again, you know, he's not going to take Manchester United to the point that they want to be at, so it's not a long-term uh, solution. Eric Bailly, perennially injured. You can go through the squad. You know, me personally, Luke Shaw, been there for six years. Not going to add much to where Man United want to go. And I know Man some Man United fans will say that's a bit too much. But I think there are improvements in the left-back position that we can make for sure. Juan Mata's not going to contribute from here on out. Even though he's a good player, he just hasn't got it in the legs anymore. I think it's now all upstairs for him. So what do you do with all those players? They're not, they're not going to leave during a summer transfer window where many clubs have been affected by the break due to the coronavirus crisis and they're not going to spend money on a lot of these players are risks given their salaries you know who wants to pay Jesse Lingard's salary at the moment Man United don't even want to pay that probably so it's serious he's travelled down for the game against Chelsea in the FA Cup he can't even make the bench players like that making over £100,000 a week who's offered Phil Jones his extension who's offered Jesse Lingard his extension what were they expecting these players to do for Manchester United, you know, that money could have been used on either a new star coming through or to, to find a gem. You know, I wouldn't be annoyed if Lindelof left. You know, like there are so many players in Manchester United squad. Again, Manchester United want to be at the level of challenging for 
not just the Premier League, they want to be in the conversation when it comes to European Cups. At the moment, they struggle to qualify. Well, they're currently in the, the top four. Of course, Leicester's going to be crucial and there is the possible route through the Europa League as well. Before we touch maybe on what's going to happen this weekend with Chelsea's clash with Wolves and the Leicester-Man United game, how impressed were you with David Moyes on his second ever return to Old Trafford uh, with his increasingly confident West Ham and indeed his, his pre-game assertion that the only difference between Ole Gunnar Solskjaer and him is that Ole got time. What do you think, Hugh? Um, <laughs> Solskjaer is very much, you can see that uh, Sir Alex has rubbed off on him and his footballing philosophy. Um, David Moyes, was he hard done by? I mean, look, managers subsequent to him were given more money to spend. But also, and I think David Moyes has admitted this, you know, he found it difficult to adjust to what it was like being the manager of Manchester United. He's made comments before about, um, compared to Everton, for, for example, the amount of commercial responsibilities that the players had. You know, he thought he'd be able to spend time with them, even on their days off or doing extra work, things that players at Everton would have done for him. And he realised that, you know, their sponsors would want them for a day or they'd be off doing some advert somewhere. Um, he didn't get that when they went on tour that the focus would be on promoting the brand rather than working on the football. So, look, you know, he can make whatever assertion he, he wants. I don't think anyone, including David Moyes, would say that he did a good job as Manchester United boss. What he could have done with time, we don't know. But, I, you know... <laughs> He's yet to have shown since being at Manchester United that they made a mistake getting rid of him. Football is one of those things, right? It's about perception and where you want to be. Where do West Ham want to be? And, you know, with David Moyes and the squad that they currently have, for me, they should be doing better. Next season, I would I would expect them to be around mid-table without massive changes. I know there are areas of the pitch that need improvement. I think David Moyes is a good enough manager to do that. You know, there's talk of people like Ross Barkley being linked with West Ham and look if Kai Havertz is going to go in there then then maybe Ross Barkley will be available and will want to leave because I guess his opportunities will be limited but but over the last few games they found a bit of spirit centered around Mikel Antonio and, and his performances and I think it was good once again but you know you have to understand that this is sparked by the, the the possibility of being relegated well dare I ask you how you feel about the trip to the King Power this Sunday I'm very philosophical about Manchester United now I'm not I'm not you know, I'm not going to be screaming if they lose the game. If they don't make the Champions League, it's because they don't deserve it after 38 matches. And that means that you try and dust yourself off, make improvements to the squad, to the structure at the club. It will be another sign, though, if they miss out on the Champions League, that something isn't quite right um, in terms of, of what they're doing. And as much as Ole Gunnar Solskjaer and the, the results can mask that, you know, people like Mason Greenwood coming through can can help mask that and make it look like our academy is going to produce world beaters regularly. Um, to be so far off Manchester City and Liverpool, just in terms of your rivalry, that's bad enough. But they need to bridge the gap. And I just, you know, the idea of being in the Europa League for most Manchester United fans is probably the thing that strikes most fear into them. Uh, on the other side of this fixture about Leicester, it's... it's really bizarre to think that on New Year's Day they were 14 points clear from Man United. 
It wasn't so long ago. It seems like ages. But I think it's a chance for us to see uh, the Leicester team that we enjoyed so much on the first half of the season because they are really playing for something. They they really uh, don't want to see this Champions League spot uh, slip. And uh, I think we can see that we might see. <laughs> I wish, uh, I really wish we can see this uh, more aggressive, offensive uh, Leicester team that was so enjoyable to watch. And I think we have a, a really good chance to see that given the circumstances. Yeah, it's a bit, really big game for Brendan Rodgers. I mean, it's kind of uh, analogous with the the Chelsea game when he was Liverpool manager, you know, really a lot riding on it. And, you know, hopefully no one from the Leicester team falls over at a crucial moment. But, I mean, there is the kind of niche route for Manchester United and Leicester that Leicester could beat Manchester United and they still could both qualify if Chelsea lose at home to Wolves, yeah. which isn't right. out of the question, I don't think. So... I mean, the drama is there. It's going to be a very dramatic last day, hopefully. Wolves, of course, have something to play for. They are battling with Spurs for who's going to finish sixth or seventh. Sixth guarantees Europa League football. Seventh won't, though, unless uh, Arsenal don't win the FA Cup, which clearly their name's already on. So, you know, there's, there's plenty riding on this one for both sides. Yeah, the level is so high that I cannot not see Wolves playing next Europa League because they have been doing so well in the European competition and as well in the Premier League. But if you see Chelsea, they have been at the top four since the ninth round. It's 29 rounds at the top four. So wow. it's amazing if they, they let it slip uh, on the final round. It's just going to be very tight and very interesting. I'm, I'm very much looking forward to, to these final matches. Which are you going to watch, Natalie? Are you going to watch Chelsea Wolves or Leicester Man United? I'm going to work at Leicester Man United, but Oof. not in person, remotely. So I'm going to be watching Leicester Man United, but I'll have an eye definitely on... And there's the relegation battle that we didn't yeah. get into, but uh, I'll have an eye on, on Chelsea Wolves as well. All right. Duncan, Hugh, which one are you going to be having on your main screen? Yeah, well, I've got to watch Manchester United, obviously. Um, obviously, right. Yeah. But I'll, I'll have, I'll have probably have both on. Yeah. How many screens will you have up, Duncan? Will you be man who fell to earth again? Um, probably. I think I've we've talked about this before. I think the maximum you can try and watch uh, effectively is three games. So probably those two matches, and then the relegation game that sounds most exciting. But you know, I right. agree across with everything. that number. Three is a good number. Yeah. Three, the magic number. All right, then. Well, big games on Sunday for those teams. Harry Maguire, of course, going back to Leicester for the first time. And Jamie Vardy chasing that golden boot. Equally, that would be his first. And next up, Natalie, you're right. Let's get on to the battle at the bottom. I thought I'd never see you again. I missed how you made me feel, the excitement you brought me. But I never stopped loving you. Did you just say something, mate? Or just looking at the Premier League fixtures like... Absence makes the heart grow fonder, so it's never been a better time to be a football fan. Celebrate with the Acker Cracker from Paddy Power. It covers all games on all markets, and if one leg folds, you get a free bet. Paddy Power. Max free bet £10, minimum odds of 1-5 to five on for each leg. T's and C's apply, 18 plus, begumbleaware.org. You're listening to The Totally Football Show with James Richardson. Back on long ago Tuesday night, a couple of big surprise results in the relegation fight. Watford losing to Man City, the shot being it was only 4-0 that one. And Aston Villa beating Arsenal 1-0, moving the Villains out of the bottom three for the first time since February. Arguably, actually, 
This result was the more predictable one. Of course, Arsenal, having beaten the last two Premier League champions back-to-back and reached the cup final, would then lose a key game 1-0 to a team in the bottom three. Can now Villa continue their dramatic late recovery to the final weekend? And what was the reaction among their supporters? Well, let's hear now from Dan Bardell from the Athletics 1874 podcast. Dan, first of all, well done for Tuesday. And how long did it take you to come down from that one? Well, I didn't get to sleep till about 4am, so quite quite a while, to be honest. I was quite, quite wired after that game. It, it was so intense, but I think it's important to realise that as good as as good as good Tuesday was and as happy as we are about it, that we've given ourselves a, a massive chance and a massive shot in the arm, we're still not there yet. And as we saw last night with football, there can still be plenty of twists and turns. So I'm hoping that we're not the victim of any of those twists and turns like we saw from some of the teams in the Championship last night. Hmm. It's been quite a, quite a run, though, uh, all of a sudden from Dean Smith's side. You had 10 games without a win, but now uh, two wins and a draw from, from the last three. What's behind it? I think since we've come back from uh, the, the lockdown and, and football's come back, we have been a lot more resolute defensively because you'll know as well as I do before before the break, we were a shambles defensively. We couldn't defend to save, save our lives. So the expected goals has, has gone right down. So we've made ourselves more resolute that the problem was in the first six or seven games back, we just didn't look like we were going to score. So we were looking like we might only concede one, but we were never, ever going to put the ball in, in the back of the net. The last few games, we've we've looked a lot better going, going forward. We, we still haven't got a striker that can score goals to save our lives, but we just look a lot, a lot more driven and focused. And I thought against Arsenal on Tuesday, we looked very good on the break. I, I thought we were the better side. Arsenal didn't have a shot on target all, all game. And we just look like we know what's required now. While the other teams have started to fall apart a little bit, we've come into a bit of form. And we saw at the back end of last season when we had to win, we did it in the championship. And I'm, and I'm hoping now that these last four games, when we've known we've had to, we're going to pull out all the results. A couple of key men to mention. First of all, uh, Mamad Trezeguet, who's uh, hit scoring form at just the right moment. And also uh, another key figure, whoever it was who went out for a cup of tea in the VAR booth uh, when the Blades <laughs> scored in your your first game back. We move on then to uh, the final game of the season away at West Ham. Possibly uh, Jack Grealish's last game in a Villa shirt. It's something that he's mentioned as a, as a possibility. What, what are the prospects, do you think, of Villa making this count? We've got to now, but just because we've put ourselves in, in such a strong position, it's it's a really weird one, though, that we could we could win our game. And if there's a goal different swing, we could still go down. But also, if we lose, everyone else could obviously lose and, and, and we end up staying up. So it's going to be a really funny day. On Sunday, I think, on the Jack Grealish front, I think I don't think it really matters what, what we do because he's going, to, he's going to go anyway because he's outgrown us. I think we're, we're light years away from what Jack Grealish needs. So I don't see there being any chance of us keeping him at all. I actually think if we were to get relegated, it makes life a bit easier for Jack because he can, he can use that as, as a reason for going. If we stay up, I think there'll be a lot of Villa fans that expect him to stay. But I, I just don't think that that's realistic because he's given good service and he, he needs to be playing the Champions League to, to give himself a chance for England. So I, I just don't see that happening. But he'll want to leave Villa as a, as a Premier League club, as much as it would be easier for him if we go down, I think to leave, he'll want Villa to be a, pre- a Premier League club when he leaves because he is a massive Villa fan and he, and he loves the club. But the main thing is we've just given ourselves a chance because a couple of weeks ago, I was resigned to us going, going down and I'd, I'd given up even when Everton equalised so late 
last week, it, ju- it just felt like it was gone and we'd blown our opportunity. But a few things have gone our way over the over the last few weeks. You, you talk about that VAR call as well. It, obviously, it was an absolute shambles. But through the season, we've had our own issues with VAR and technology and, and whatnot. So I felt like we deserved one a little bit. But Sunday's massive. West, the West Ham result last night means they're safe. You've just got to hope they've taken their foot off the gas a little bit and they're already thinking about their holidays the next day. Dan, one last thing. Uh, a lot was made of the amount of money that Villa spent last summer after promotion. How much would relegation hit the club? How much trouble would Villa be in? I think at some point, this, the footballer, the AFL, they're going to make a massive example of someone and I feel like they're kind of rubbing their hands at the prospects of, of Villa going down. On the money side, we we absolutely had to spend the money because we, we didn't have a squad. We, we we had so many players on loan in, in the championship and put older players out of contract that we, that we had to buy. But we didn't buy well enough. I, I'd have preferred if we'd have kept a few of those older people on and we'd, we'd have spent the money a bit a bit more cleverly and got into a bit of Premier League experience like we did in the goalkeeping area with Tom Heaton. But we didn't do that. We, we had to spend the money. The signings have been hit, hit and miss. But yeah, at some point, I think the AFL are going to make a massive example. I know the financial fair play has been deferred for a year. One way you can look at it, I suppose, is if we did go down, they're going to make money on McGinn, Grealish and and Mings. That Villa would make good money for those three players. So that would probably help the finances a a great deal. But I wouldn't trust us to spend the money if it it came in either. So we'll just see what happens. But hopefully it's something that we don't have to think about because I'm feeling confident now that we're going to do it. All right, then. It's never the hope that gets you, Dan. Don't worry. Excellent. <laughs> enjoy enjoy, enjoy Sunday and uh, look forward to speaking to you again soon. Always a pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Dan Bardell from The Athletic's 1874 podcast, which is all about Villa. As for Arsenal, by the way, that 1-0 defeat means they will finish outside the top six for the first time in 25 years. As Dan mentioned, they had no shots None on target. And the remarkable turnaround about Arsenal. A lot of people pointing out that it wasn't surprising that they could beat two of the stronger teams in the country and then lose to Aston Villa because as opposed to just doing this defending, they had to actually go out and create. And that's what, bizarrely, Arsenal no longer have people to do. They've become a team exact opposite of what we expect, who can actually be resolute, but can't actually, they don't have creative people in the midfield. How, how did this happen? Uh, well, Arteta uh, was asked about their creative potential, we might say, and he said that this only improves with training time and understanding the spaces. And if you consider that uh, Arteta worked uh, a long time alongside uh, Pep Guardiola, and when you talk to City players, they always say that they, they know how to find each other on the pitch. So I think that will require time. That The idea of uh, an attacking team uh, will require time at Arsenal because uh, I think it's part of the philosophy, this uh, finding spaces and finding themselves on the team. And I don't think it's necessarily down to a player, a creative player, one person, because there has been a lot of talk about, oh, Ozil might be this guy. How many chances uh, did Ozil get in the past few years to show that he can be this guy? I think it's more the case uh, of Mikel Arteta finding alternatives like... most obvious example, uh, Liverpool did, Jurgen Klopp did, without that number 10, that midfield creative uh, guy, uh, then, oh, okay, let's rescue Ozil one more time. I don't think that would be the the, the answer to, to Arsenal's creative problems. 
if All we right. can call it creative problems, yeah. Okay, no shots on target. Probably, you know, we could. What do you think then, having given up three points to Villa, what are they going to do this weekend against Watford with the prospect of relegating Troy Deeney, uh, a powerful motivator? That is the, um, not many teams have got an issue with Watford, I would think, apart from Luton. But yeah, Arsenal and Watford do have a little bit of a, of a history. So I think, um, yeah, I think Arsenal will probably be pretty fired up for this. And, you know, Watford looked so abject against City that it does look pretty bleak for them. I know a few Watford fans and they're already preparing for the championship and first games against Luton for a long time. Um, some, you know, some local clashes are, are known as the friendly derby. This, this definitely isn't one of them. So that's something to look forward to next season, at least. Bournemouth in the mix too. They are at Everton. They're three points behind Watford and Villa. As I say, they're at Everton. Cherries haven't won an away game so far uh, this year. They need to get the victory here and get a two-goal swing in their favour against Villa. Eddie Howe was an Everton supporter as a boy. What a cruel irony it would be if it were they to seal their demotion to the uh, second tier. Who's going to go down, do you think? Hugh, Duncan, Natalie, who's going to go down? I think that it'll be Bournemouth and Watford and I think that's quite interesting in the sense that they they came up together um, four seasons ago and you know they've obviously taken different approaches to to dealing with the Premier League in that time in you know transfer policy and replacing managers or not replacing managers a slight difference Um, but ultimately if you're a club of that size you know relegation will come knocking eventually Um, and it's something that clubs should remember that unless you are one of the top six you know, even Newcastle will go down every five, six, ten years. Um, it's something to be aware of and, and don't overspend. Is it like that horror film about the people who escape death on the plane crash? Like, you can do whatever you want, mm. but sooner or later... Final destination. Final yeah. destination. Thanks. Yeah, final destination brackets the championship. Close brackets. Well, that's terrible. But yes, I, I, I agree with Duncan in the team part. I think it's going to be Watford and, and Bournemouth. More because, well, I think if there's a team right now at this moment that looks like a team who's really fighting for their lives, fighting against relegation, it's Aston Villa, obviously. And when you see Watford, when you watch Watford play, I remember when Sanchez Flores was uh, sacked, uh, the players were saying that they wanted more attacking and they, they, they wanted to look more like an attacking team. They didn't want just to defend. And now with three different managers, what, what does Watford look like? You know, you, you can't see clearly. So I think they, they, they will end up paying for it, maybe. I would go for a Watford Bournemouth, yeah. All right, Hugh? There's just a part of me that wonders... Um... You know, Arsenal not playing for anything, the cup final a week after, you know, how they approach the game. Does Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang start? You know, you're going up against a team that needs to get something to stay up. You know that that in the least, I think Watford, I think driven by Troy Deeney, will bring aggression to the party. You know, that they've always been able to sort of get inside the head of Arsenal a little bit. I know Mikel Arteta wasn't the manager and maybe the mentality's improved. But certainly I expect some fire and brimstone from Watford. So why not back them to stay up? Villa to draw, Watford to win. All right. Who would that send down? That would send down Villa. Watford would overtake them. Excellent. Uh, Still to come, other matches from the Premier League weekend and other things too, like some cracking goals from Europe. And of course, our big breakdown of what happened Wednesday night in that incredible championship finale. 
You're listening to the Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Lome, vai jogar pelo Porto para o Uribe. Que bel trabalho agora. Otávio, Luís Dias, o calcanhar. Otávio, que golaço! Oof. Has everyone seen the Porto goal against Morirense? Yeah. Natalie, have you seen that? No, no, I didn't. Oh, well, you'll enjoy it. Freshly crowned Portuguese champions, of course, Porto, and they went and had a, a 6-1 against Morirense. And Tequinho Suarez, who who, uh, who scores, but essentially about six or seven players should get the assist. There's this wonderful sweeping move up the field, which is capped off by kind of back-to-back back heels inside the box. It's pretty special. Differing fortunes this week for the two teams to have reached two Champions League or European Cup finals and won them both. Porto and Nottingham Forest. Right, right. Um, another 6-1 midweek in Europe, meanwhile, uh, saw Roma doing spell. And this equally saw a pretty special goal. Nicolo Zaniolo. What what a player. He's another of these classic inter-prospects who they... They let go and, and can't get back after them. I mean, the list is endless. It's Beppe Signori, uh, Franco Baresi, oh, Pirlo, there's another one. Anyway, he, he's just done his uh, ACL, or he's just come back from doing his ACL, and he's scored a couple of goals. But this remarkable, tearing up the, the Spal team and uh, sitting various defenders on his way from deep in his own half. I mean, Roma fans might not enjoy the comparison, but it was quite Paul Gascoigne-esque in a way, in the sense that he... He he barged through a lot of players. It wasn't a sort of mazy, messy style dribble. It was a kind of pacey barge players out of the way and then a, a lovely finish at the end. A lovely finish as about seven players are converging on him. He just has the coolness to stop, take a look and then curl it round. Nice. Anyway, uh, Roma, because I know you want to know about this, have now locked up their Europa League place. Milan have two and Ralph Rangnick won't be taking over there because they're going to stay with Stefano Pioli. That's heartwarming stuff. What have we got this weekend that's not top four and bottom three related? Uh, well, Spurs, mentioned the fact that they're in a tussle with Wolves for sixth place, are going to be at Palace, who back on Monday lost to Wolves, uh, which was their seventh straight defeat. Oh dear. Newcastle will be taking on Liverpool. Saints play Sheffield United. And uh, Man City hosts Norwich and Burnley are up against Brighton. Danny Ings is one of the coolest stories of the season. He he suffered so many times with uh, big injuries and last season as well with the hamstring and he had knee problems. And this season, he already scored 21 goals. He's two behind Jamie Vardy. Uh, mm-hmm. So so it's really nice to, to see him uh, in this form, fighting for the golden boot, of course, it is difficult because it's a two-goal difference uh, against Sheffield United, who's a team who defends really well. But it can happen. So, so yeah, go Danny Ings. Right. You're, you're Team Ings on this one, are you? I think I am, yes. Right. As much as Vardy is a great story as well. Right. But we, he's a story we've told a little bit. Maybe Ings is a yes. fresh new chapter in exactly, Golden Boot James. terms. Sheffield United are n- no longer uh, nurturing any European hopes after their defeat at home to Everton on Monday. They can finish no higher than eighth, which is rubbish. And I would put that to Chris Wilder were he in front of me <laughs> right now. Oh, that's uh, fair. <laughs> right. Burnley Brighton. I read that Sean Dyche is one of four British managers in the top half of the Premier League. And it's the first time that's happened in five years. Also on Burnley, this is, assuming it doesn't happen this weekend, it'll be the first time under Dyche in the Premier League they've completed a season without picking up a yellow card for simulation. So there's progress there. Really? Mm. 
That's yeah, not something that gets mentioned very often, but it's true. Okay. And there's the Golden Glove run because Nick mm. Pope has uh, 15 clean sheets and Ederson as well, 15. So I, I don't see Norwich scoring against Man City, but Nick Pope has been doing so brilliantly. Just like they used to say in 1326, it's been a great season for Pope. Right, what happened in 1326, uh, Duncan? To be honest, I don't know. I'm just, I just picked a medieval year at random. But. Right, OK. <laughs> if, if Norwich fail to score, they will set a new record for fewest away goals in a Premier League season, which is currently, well, they're currently on seven in, in 18 games. That Man City match will also see Kevin De Bruyne chasing Thierry Henry's assists record. Uh, he's on 19 and yeah. just one short of Thierry Henry. So I mentioned this in the Watford game when City got the penalty. Like, surely, if it's late on in this game and he needs an assist and City get a penalty, which isn't, you know, that unimaginable, he should just do the, you know, roll the assist to a teammate. That I mean, come on. It particularly would be good because obviously Henri and Perez tried to do that and it didn't work. So there'd be, a, there'd be a nice little twist at the end. And that would be perfectly legal, Duncan. Yeah, it's, um, it's been done badly, like the Henri Perez one, and it's been done very successfully. Uh, as well, I think I think last week uh, Paris Saint Germain did it, didn't they? I think Neymar, I think it was a, it was a, one of their preseason friendlies, but Neymar was about to take the penalty, rolled it slightly too far actually to Mauro Icardi, who needed a touch from about eight yards out before he could finish it because he'd been pushed wide. So it was actually a good finish in the end. Yeah, but um, you can definitely do it, and I think yeah, it's been done before. Messi and Suarez. Yes, Messi Suarez. Yes, that that was that that was uh, kind of a famous one. But uh, uh, the Neymar Icardi was against Le Havre when PSG won nine new. Uh, and yeah, I I like it. I I I I had questions if it counted as an assist, but I think it's a great solution for Kevin uh, for Kevin De Bruyne in this case. Uh, yeah, maybe we should expect that. That that would be that would be fun. Especially if he passes to Edison to score. That really would cut the season off. <laughs> Can you imagine? Uh, we, we want to have a quick mention for Crystal Palace and their seven straight defeats. Uh, they are at home to Spurs. Yeah, who they've lost the last nine against, which is their uh, longest ever losing streak against a single opponent in the top flight. Um, it's the first time Roy Hodgson's lost seven games in a row in his managerial career. Um, but it's a weird scenario where normally in that situation the fans would be kind of baying for a new manager. But I think Palace fans are quite worried that if, if Hodgson retires at the end of the season, which he might do, that it could get even worse next season. You know, they've got a very old squad. Um, you know, they have got some good academy players and possibly that is the solution. And maybe they'll get a run out against Spurs. Mm. Only Norwich have scored fewer goals than Palace in the Premier League. This season, as for Spurs, a lot of Tottenham supporters excited by the fact that they will definitely finish above Arsenal. However, of course, if they do come in in seventh place and Arsenal win the FA Cup, well, then the Gunners will have the last laugh, assuming everybody wants to get into the Europa League, which is a big if at this point. Right. Still to come, final night of the championship. Who's up? Who's down? We'll be discovering after this. First of all, though, here's Lee Price in conversation with Ben Green. 
Thank you very much, Jimbo. Hello, listeners. And uh, incidentally, if you ever thought, well, what's producer Ben really like, other than these bits he does with Lee Price, um, I highly recommend that you listen to the latest episode of the TIFO podcast, which is uh, also part of The Athletic, but available everywhere, where I speak all about my career, podcasting, bit of wrestling, Channel 4, all sorts of stuff. It's good fun. Anyway... That's not what you're here for. You're here to hear from Lee Price and the odds. Lee, it's the final weekend of the Premier League season. Who is going to finish in those remaining Champions League places? <laughs> I'm trying not to say it's a foregone conclusion here, but the numbers suggest otherwise. Cheers, traders. To finish in the top four, Chelsea 1-10, to despite that loss to Liverpool, because of course their two rivals play each other. So very likely that Frank Lampard steers the Blues to Champions League football. And United are 1-4 to four to join them, with Leicester priced at 7-5. to five. However, I found a sneaky way of getting slightly more value than that, because effectively, if United avoid defeat against Leicester, then they're in the top four. The price for them to do that is 3-10, to 10, and that better market is the double chance. You're welcome. And Lee, as your proctologist once said, it's extremely tight at the bottom, so who is going to be going down along with Norwich? Aye, aye, aye. Even I'm nervous, and I don't support anyone in the Premier League, or indeed the Football League. Uh, it's going to be tense, but we think actually pretty clear cut. What a difference a week or two makes for Aston Villa. They were one to eight to go down not that long ago. Now, better than evens to do so. Nine to four. Odds on, therefore, they stay up. Watford, on the other hand, one to three to get relegated. Probably shouldn't have sacked their manager. Bournemouth, gone, we think. One to 40. Ouch. And finally, more positive news. Who is going to end up with the golden boot? <sighs> At first, I wasn't sure to say, Ben, beyond the words Jamie Vardy. He's 1-33 to win the Golden Boot. Job done, back to bed. Or so I thought. On closer inspection, perhaps Danny Ings is good value here. He's priced at 14-1 to and is two goals behind Vardy. So he needs to score two or more to at least share it against Sheffield United. Not impossible. And for Vardy to fire a blank against United. Not impossible. And that, therefore, makes it suddenly slightly, potentially, maybe interesting. Our traders, though, who are the number wizards and far more intelligent than me, see no chance of that happening. You can find out these odds and more at paddypower.com or the Paddy Power app. Prices are accurate at the time of recording. It's over 18s only. Terms and conditions apply. And when the fun stops, stop. The championship stopped Wednesday night. What an incredible finale it was. West Ham, Brentford and Fulham were... Battling for the final automatic promotion place. Naturally, none of them won. But it is Slavon Bilic's baggies that are back in the Premier League. Uh, they've been top two since October the 2nd, but failed to win any of their last four games. Hugh, here I am rabbiting on, but you were actually watching all of this unfold, you know, at the control centre for TalkSport. Uh, what, what was the biggest shock for you Wednesday night? Well, it has to be, I think, Barnsley beating Brentford. In a way, it's a shock because, of course, it's a team, what, Brentford probably 19, 20 places above Barnsley going into the game, knowing as well with the pressure that a win gives them a good chance of going to the Premier League and certainly anything less than a win with West Brom taking on QPR, who've been out of sorts as well. And it was at Griffin Park. You just assumed that Brentford would get back on form after defeat uh, in their previous match against Stoke and that they'd, they'd, they'd get the three points. And... um it was disappointing for them because they walked off the pitch knowing that if they had won, they would have been promoted because West Brom actually drew against Queen's Park Rangers. So, you know, it was desperately sad for them. Fantastic for Barnsley, who spent most of the season in the bottom three. And on the final day, a win in pretty much on the 90th minute from Clark Ottawar, who goes down in Tyke's uh, history as a goal that keeps them in the championship. Um, 
gets them out of the bottom three. It was pretty remarkable from that perspective. I think only two teams failed to score on the final day of the season and they were both in the bottom three. I think Hull and Charlton, the only teams that failed uh, to score. One of the things that made it so dramatic was that, of course, it usually isn't on a midweek evening game. So I think that helped with the drama under the floodlights. Of course, there were no fans there, but I think that just played a part, you know, deep into the, the middle of the night, you know, 10 o'clock-ish as these games finished. So I think that played a part. I was desperately sad for Wigan, who go down despite actually finishing 13th in terms of the points they accrued, but then with a 12-point deduction because they've gone into administration, you know, lots of allegations around why and how that has happened. Fingers pointed at the EFL and their owner, who it seems on the face of it has virtually sold the club to himself, allegedly, to, it seems, get more interest on a loan. And that is desperately sad for Paul Cook and, and his team and, and everyone concerned with Wigan Athletic. Well, I say everyone concerned with Wigan Athletic. There are, of course, some people concerned with the club who may be responsible for it. And, and really, the teams that went down, Charlton and Hull, uh, alongside Wigan into League One, what you basically got to see is, you know, clubs that, that have been, I hate to say it, but run badly um, throughout the course of the season ended up going down because Hull sold their two best players in January and never replaced them you know, just use the money and they go down to League One. And Charlton, who we know all about, the, the rows back and forth, the difficulty with the amount of players that they had on loan, players like Lyle Taylor and Chris Solly, they're not wanting to play due to the coronavirus impacts on their contracts, play out the end of the season, meant that they couldn't get the points that they needed to stay in the league as well. So for all three teams, for varying reasons, it's really desperately sad that they've gone mm. out of the league. Wigan will appeal against the 12-point deduction. That should be heard on the 31st of July. And in the meantime, one other uh, bit of news regarding them is that the administrators have announced that they have agreed the sale of the club in principle with a preferred bidder who they can't name because of a confidentiality agreement. So that could be good news or it could be Carl Oyston. I mean, you just don't know at this point. But anyway, we, we shall see. I'm hopeful that it's the people who run... At Wigan Warriors rugby league side. Right. I'd, I'd love to see. Um, I'd love to see Wigan's away kit permanently become red and white hoops with white shorts and white socks, which is of Brilliant. course the the Wigan Warriors kit. That would be cool. Just one thing on Wigan: a few people, if they do go down, they'll have gone down with a positive uh, goal difference. And a few people asking if that's unique. Um, it's not because Sheffield United managed to do it in 1980-81 without a points deduction. So that really is impressive. As for the playoffs. It's Brentford, Fulham, Cardiff and Swansea and no Nottingham Forest. They've been in the playoff places all season, but they slipped out in the final 20 minutes of that last game against Stoke. And you got very little sympathy for this, Hugh. <laughs> Listen, you, you go into a game, you know that goals are vitally important. I mean, Swansea got a 4-1 win at Reading and Forest were beaten 4-1 at home and that five-goal swing that needed to take place became... Six, and I, you know, the, the time that Forrest conceded the last three goals at 73, 78 and 96 minutes. I mean, 20 minutes to play, it's one all. You know goals are of vital importance. I mean, what do you do? What do you do? You, you, you know, you try your best to shut up shop. You certainly, once you concede one, you, you pretty much put everyone behind the ball. Once you concede two, I mean, you take every forward off. You pretty much go with a flat 10 at the back. no. They didn't. They conceded another. And um, that's that's poor from my perspective. 
Absolutely. We'll be uh, getting the views of a Forest supporter on that, uh, Matt Davis-Adams, who unfortunately this morning has to host the Totally Football League show. That won't be much fun for him, but do tune in for the results. And also that Daniel Story will be joining us on Sunday, by which time I'm sure he'll have fully recovered from this colossal <laughs> disappointment. Should just mention Rian Brewster's goal for Swansea, their opening goal, which was an absolute screamer. And I think he's been really, really good on loan at Swansea. Um, and possibly, you know, Liverpool fans still upset that Timo Werner's gone to Chelsea. But, you know, Brewster is, you know, he should presumably get some, some good chances for Liverpool next season. And that's, uh, I, that's I, I'm interested to see what Jurgen Klopp does with Rian Brewster, because I think he's a great talent. He's a genuine goal scorer, especially if you see his first goal last night, as Duncan points out. But he is such a different style of player to Roberto Firmino. And if he's going to play through the middle for Liverpool, you just don't know how he fits their style. I've seen Rian Brewster play for Liverpool with a lot of their youngsters. I think it was, you know, in the League Cup game. And it was evident to see that the team had been trained exactly the same way as Jurgen Klopp's first team. They want to play in exactly the same style. They've got some great young players just behind their first team at Liverpool, the likes of Harvey Elliott, the likes of Sepp van den Berg, Keanu Hoover. There's loads of great players coming through. Um, however, that central striker role, he wanted to get the ball. He's got speed. He wants to get in behind. He wants to be one-on-one with the goalkeeper. And Roberto Firmino, who, although he got on the score sheet last night, we know that his job isn't really to do that. It's to link play. And that is where Rian Brewster's game, I think, is still lacking when it comes to the talent that is Roberto Firmino. And just, just, just two different styles. And I'm unsure whether he will fit what Klopp wants unless he's moved out wide. And if he is moved out wide, I think he's a totally different type of player and his potency goes. So um, it'll be interesting to see whether he will get the opportunity under Jurgen Klopp to, to prove himself. On the subject of young talent at Liverpool, just to finish off, uh, our Cam with a late tweet here asking, is Oily Sailor, fum- that's Duncan by the way, a fuming at Martin Tyler using his Curtis Jones containing the word Scouser fact without crediting him? Is it true, Duncan? Was that yours? It was actually a colleague of mine who came up with it, yeah, and pushed it. I retweeted it a week or so ago, but you know, How about there that? we go. There you go. All right, and there we go, listener. As mentioned, there's a Totally Football League show up pretty much right now, so do... Tune in there to Matt's Misery and more from the midweek finale of the championship. Uh, We will be back on Sunday night stroke Monday morning with our roundup of the final day of the Premier League season. For now, many, many thanks to Hugh, Natalie, Duncan and producer Charlie and you, listener. Have yourselves a great time till we're with you next. From all of us here, it's goodbye. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, a Muddy Knees Media production. For sales and advertising, please email sales at muddykneesmedia.com. Keep up to date with everything across our Totally Football network at The Totally Show on Twitter. And make sure you check out our brand new website too, thetotallyfootballshow.com. Muddy Knees Media.